This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP, 106.5 FM, Louisville. My guest is Dr. Thomas Murphy, an astrophysicist who works as a professor at University of California, San Diego. Tom, how are you doing today? Doing fine, thanks. Great. Uh, t- tell us about your work and what, what kinds of interesting work do you get to do um, as an astrophysicist? Well, you know, for me, that's a story of looking into the past because I'm kind of a recovering astrophysicist. Um, <laughs> definitely, sorry about the cat. Uh fun career um, in terms of being distracting and entertaining and challenging and um, heady in terms of dealing with cosmology and how we got here and some of the big questions. Um, I guess for most of my career, I spent shooting a laser at the moon to measure uh, the distance to the reflectors that the astronauts left on the lunar surface, um, measuring Earth-Moon distance to millimeter accuracy as a way to test gravity, to see if the Moon's orbit was following the prescription that general relativity uh, lays out or if it was departing from, from that prescription. So, you know, fundamental tests of, of physics, and it's just really fun to build a piece of equipment that works and measures something to a a relic from our, you know, glorious space history. Um, So nobody can tell me that the landings were faked because I personally built the laser system that, you know, (laughs) touched those reflectors. And yes, Mm -hmm. they're exactly where they're supposed to be, exactly the size they're supposed to be. Uh, So it's, uh, it, it was definitely a fun journey. Sounds great. So you brought some notes with you. Did you want to read the story that you brought with you? Well, yeah, this is experimental. I've never, I I wrote it down last night because I'm thinking about how to tell this story in general. And uh, so I haven't read through it yet (laughs) and we'll see how it goes. But basically, you know, what I want to get across is that the story of where we are is actually pretty simple, that humans have been around in some form for about two and a half million years. And I want to compare that to a human lifetime because that's something that we have some intuition for. So let's say that's about 75 years. The Homo sapiens uh, brand of of humans has only been around for the last 200,000 years or so. So that's kind of six years on our lifetime. Um, And agriculture started about a thousand years ago. That's 15 weeks. We've just been doing this in our whole lifetime as humans, this is a very new thing. 15 weeks we've been doing this. And it's an, it, you know, think of this as uh, our first attempt to exert control or mastery over other species. You know, before the emphasis was on learning how to live with uh, other species and, you know, mesh into that, that ecosystem. But agriculture kind of took a whole different turn science is just the last 400 years and that's just four days of our lifetime and that's precision control that's taking control up to a whole new level of sophistication and and uh and success at some level then the fossil fuel explosion of the last 150 years that's a game changer um that basically put this control on steroids now it's power and control so we can move mountains we can mine materials that were 
inaccessible before. We can uh, form a global civilization and it just um, makes so many more things possible. So in that giant, you know, recent explosion of, uh, of resource availability, um, we've seen about a 70% decline in vertebrates just in the last 50 years, which is the last, uh, you know, 12 hours of our life. So imagine you've lived a, a, a nice 75 year old you know, year long life. And in the last 12 hours, you see your environment just collapsing. You should be alarmed at that. Mm-hmm. You should think this something really, really uh, big is happening. So at this point, 96% of mammal mass on the planet is in the form of humans and our livestock, mm-hmm. uh, only 4% wild mammals. So we're really squeezing this precious planet to to death. Um, and it's all very new. So, so it's really... Let's yeah, uh, review those numbers real quick again. You're saying that Homo sapiens has been here 200,000 years. So let's analogize that to a 70-year lifespan, 80-year lifespan, something like that. So I'm taking all humans for two and a half million years as the whole okay. lifespan. Okay. And so Homo sapiens is just the last 200,000, which is six years in this okay. period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what are the other time frames? And then agriculture started 10,000 years ago, which is 15 weeks in our lifetime. Very recent. You right. remember what you were doing 15 weeks ago. It's, right. it's uh, recent history. So science, the last 400 years, which is just the last four days of our life, we picked up a new hobby, you know, suddenly. And uh, then fossil fuels, just the last 36 hours. Um, and and then the species uh, decline just in the last 12 hours. We've seen it decline 70% very rapid and so it's like a it's a it's a hard crash it's a slam and even though a lot of it has been about control and exercising greater control we're kind of out of control this is really a free fall that's that's hitting hard hitting the planet hard and this is a problem that's not going to be solved by technology and science i'd say it's caused by technology and science um but we've acquired a certain um I guess, uh, uh, affinity for that approach. And even though it's not gone so well, so we're not going to outsmart this. We're not just going to somehow find all the right knobs and turn them and tweak them and suddenly master this spaceship. Um, you know, we never have been able to do that. We were, we're only opening up more cans of worms and creating problems much faster than anything we're solving. So, um, Almost all of this, too, has been just based on non-renewable finite resources, like an inheritance. And we're spending it as fast as humanly possible. Um, and that, that's another context that we have to understand, that this is a very recent phenomenon that is, by definition, uh, going to go poorly because it's a finite resource. Our decisions, meanwhile, are based on a shamefully narrow uh, metric called money. And our our valuation of things is so completely skewed that it makes bad decisions. We we make our decision based on the wrong metric, and then they are just you know uh, not surprisingly bad. So our short term transactional nature has been about the uh, uh, the value 
um, to us in in the short term and not to other life in our habitat. So we're putting value on the wrong things. So of course this system is going to fail. It's not built on a foundation of sustaining ecosystems. Uh, it's a growth system in a finite world. Of course that fails. Right. It's inevitable. So, um, you know, in fact, I talked about financial things. Money goes in the exact opposite direction to, uh, you know, sustainable practices it's money is about exploiting not uh, resources and not about preserving or um or let's let's talk about that one of the things that you said i I discovered you on nate hagan's podcast Hmm. uh, and you said something that you know if we assume economic growth of 2.33 percent per year Mm -hmm. uh, year over year then over the course of a hundred years, the economy has expanded by a factor of 10. So if we start where we are, hundred years from now, it's going to multiply by 10. If it keeps growing at 2.33% per year, it's going to be a hundred and 20 years, you know, two. Anyway, Mm -hmm. each hundred year period expands by a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. And economic growth in our system tends to correlate to the growth in the use of energy. So that would seem to go straight to the issue of you're dealing with uh, infinite growth on a finite planet. How does that end? Or, you know, what are some of the limitations uh, of that? Yeah, I mean, that that's a very relevant line of thinking and one that I've used often to indicate that this growth phase is a very temporary phase. And again, this timeline that I've laid out is trying to emphasize that as well, that this is a very recent um, untested uh, short-term phenomenon that that can't go on for the long-term. So just in terms of physical uh, measures, if, if we expanded our use of energy by a factor of 10 every century, which is historically kind of the rate at which we have grown, um, it leads to absurd results in just a few hundred years, like the waste heat from all that energy, um, inevitable waste heat thermodynamically, puts climate change to shame. And, you know, in 200 years from now, it's 10 times bigger than our climate change concerns at at present. Waste heat grows at the same rate as energy usage and therefore at 2.33 percent a year it's going to be 10 times as much in one century and 100 times as much in two centuries that's right and it just keeps getting worse and now a couple things i'm not claiming that waste heat is our real big enemy that's not what's going to get us a lot of other things are going to prevent that kind of growth trajectory from from being maintained over that kind of period I'm just pointing out that even if you wave your magic wand and allow growth to continue for all the reasons that I think it really can't, then you'd run into waste heat. Uh, The other thing to point out is the 2.3% is just a mathematical convenience to get to that factor of 10 per century, which makes it a lot easier to think about, but it's also consistent 
with it's uh, consistent with historical economic growth for the last three or four hundred years yeah. and it's consistent with the assumptions of the ipcc if i'm not mistaken the intergovernmental panel on climate change assumes three percent growth and you know they pretend to be able to tell us what the solutions are but they're also telling us that it's okay for us to have three percent growth yeah and and that's actually, I'm glad you bring it up because one of the things about IPCC models is they start with the politically acceptable. Yes, and they exactly. Say, what would the consequences of this be? And they're not starting from what is physically possible. And so it's it's a kind of a fantasy um, mm -hmm. model that it's, I, I, think, I think of physics as inviolate and you can't just mm -hmm. sort of, design the world to your imagination and that's kind of what a lot of these ipcc models do i think in some ways the situation is much worse than what they are modeling because we're not going to follow that trajectory worse for civilization but in a in a way better for the environment because we're not going to have that continued growth that would produce all that co2 um, and so it's going to be a self-terminating process in a way that's not going to be very satisfying or, or pretty uh, to humans. who So like it, it's as if the, um, the, the conversation around climate is like this. It's defined by two camps. One camp is fossil fuels all the time, no problem. The other camp is we need to get off of fossil fuels and convert to 100% renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I are both saying, how about none of the above? Because right. both camps are assuming economic growth. That's one problem with that conversation. Another problem with that conversation, as, as you have written, um, let me just share with you uh, a quote from you're from, uh, I don't know exactly which blog post it is, but you say as bad as climate change is, it's not the core problem, just another symptom of a flawed approach to life on this planet. So tell me more about that. Yeah, it really is just a symptom in the sense that if magically CO2 didn't happen to interact with infrared radiation. I mean, it could have been that way. It's just not. But let's say that the burning of fossil fuels did not create um, a greenhouse gas that, uh, you know, caused problems. We would still have destroyed 70% of vertebrates since 1970. We would still have 4% of mammals on this planet in the form of wild mammals. Climate change is not what did those things. Climate change is not what's clearing forests, it's not what's disrupting habitats, it's not what's causing soil erosion, uh, desertification, water issues. I mean, if you look around, we're really just kind of going circling the drain here. And climate change is just another headache on top of all of this. Right. So one thing that yeah. you sent me was an article from The Intercept that says addressing climate change will not, quote unquote, save the planet. I'm saying yeah, finally, from a semi-mainstream publication, I would like for this to be shouted from the rooftops, addressing climate change will not save the planet. Uh, and the, the subtitle of that is the dismal reality is that green energy will not, sa will save, 
will not say the complex web of life on Earth, but the particular way of life of one domineering species. And the article quotes Dan Ash, director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service under President Barack Obama. It says, I'm 40 years into conservation biology, and I can tell you we are losing badly, getting our asses kicked. He says, there are almost no reasons to be optimistic. And lastly, he says, the lie is that if we address the climate crisis, we will also solve the biodiversity crisis. Right. It is a lie because it's not climate change that's making the biodiversity crisis. Um, it's not making it any better. And, you know, that article got some criticism as sort of walking right up to the line of climate denialism. And I say, what? At what point did this article ever, yeah. uh, you know, sort of dismiss climate change as not a legitimate threat? It didn't. It just said that's not the main threat. And I agree with that. I think if we were to suddenly, again, wave a magic wand and we have no more fossil fuels and we have a complete renewable energy infrastructure that lets us keep doing what we're doing at the level that we're doing it today, it's the worst possible outcome for the squirrels. Mm -hmm. They would hate to see us succeed mm -hmm. in that quest because what do we use energy to do? Exactly. We use it to exploit and destroy ecosystems. That is our way. Yeah. <laughs> So giving us more of it is the worst possible thing we could do. So you're saying, I think uh, uh, Wendell Berry said this 45 years ago in his book, uh, The Unsettling of America, which is hypothetically, if we had unlimited, clean, free energy, would that be a good thing or, or a bad thing? And the whole renewable energy movement says that if we had, if we, we just need to change the way we generate energy. And if mm -hmm. we can just change the way we generate energy, then we will save the planet. So you're yeah, skeptical the, of that, right? Yeah. The implicit statement there is civilization is not the problem. It's just the mm -hmm. form of our energy. I say, no, no, it's, it's our entire approach to living on this planet right. is what's causing the problem. And it almost doesn't matter what we use and how we use it. And I'm not going to be as uh, eloquent as Wendell Berry, but the way I think of it is if every jackass on the planet had unlimited access to energy, why would we expect good things to come from that? It's right. going to be chaos and mm -hmm. devastation. Yeah. Or short term personal gain. Yeah. And then as, as the economy grows at two or three percent per year, then our energy usage grows at two or three percent per year. And we're just more and more and more and more energy to do what we do. It's like the, a species that has uh, that is making 150 other species go extinct every day doesn't need more energy to do more of what it does. Right. We would just get better at that. <laughs> better at driving ourselves into the hole and you know it's basically you know we're in a car and we've got an accelerator and our foot's on the accelerator we are deciding to push the accelerator more even though the very act of moving down the road is destroying mm -hmm. everything around us and we don't need to do more of that right we need to really step back and ask wait what what did we get ourselves into and, and we sort of unwittingly followed this course because we saw conveniences and 
and comforts and material uh, goods and you know food and other um, other resources that were were basically laid out before us if we just chose this path. And of course, we're going to follow that path. But this is Hart Hagen. You're listening to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. But now it's very clear that that path led to a bad place, is leading to a bad place, and it's all around us now. So we need a different path. We so don't what's need... your take on civilization? Well, you know, very complex because I'm embedded in it and I am a beneficiary of it and I've, I've propagated it. I have contributed to it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm inseparable from it. Um, but I can step back and, you know, it's not about me. It's about, you know, bigger, bigger picture longer time span, that's one thing that astrophysics kind of lends itself to is stepping back and feeling insignificant and looking at a larger picture over vast tracts of space and time. So doing that, um, I basically realize that civilization is incompatible with, with sustainability, which means that it will fail because sustainable means success long-term. It means you can continue doing it over and over. And right. That, yeah. Right. So if it's not sustainable, that means it fails. Okay. So any civilization, any, I shouldn't even say civilization, any kind of um, way of living on this planet that is not founded on a sustainable practice will fail. Just it's written. I mean, it's so obvious. It's, it's almost right there in the word. And so we're so far from sustainable right now that I know that this civilization must fail and it's taken long enough. And our problem is that it takes at least, you know, more than a lifetime. Why you say the civilization must fail. Why must the civilization fail? Uh, it must fail because it's not founded on sustainable principles. So it's just like saying, uh, what's rock, not sustainable about it? A rock will fail to fly because a rock is not built on the aerodynamic principles of sustained flight. And so it will, you know, if you launch it, it will fall. And so our civilization has had this upward trajectory uh, and, and convinced people who are living very short lifetimes on this trajectory that, well, the, the story is one of going up. Um, but hmm. it's, it's not built to stay up. There's nothing about its design that ever incorporated the notion of what it takes to stay up. Um, and our economic systems, our agricultural systems, nothing, none of these decisions really factored in, can this go on forever? So I have this list of 10 truths, according to you. And, um, through number three and number four are our civilization is not any sort of destiny, not the only or best way to organize ourselves on this planet. And number four is we are not building civilization brick by brick according to some master plan aiming toward a better end. No paradise or salvation awaits on the current path. Right. 
yeah, it's 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 all kind of a free for all. It's all just sort of, hey, let's try this. We're not really thinking through what the consequences are. We make our decisions again based on money and financial considerations in the short term, and that's leading to a lot of bad decisions because we're not um, thinking about whether what we're doing is something we could do for ten thousand years. You know, the the markets don't care about even five years down the road, typically. I mean, some, you do have some bleed over into longer term, but you know, a lot of it's just quarterly. It's very short-term focused. So we're, yeah, we're, we're not consciously building towards some better end. And yet the mainstream climate plans, if you can call them plans, are all about incentivizing the very system that is that does not have a plan and is not concerned about biodiversity or even human well-being just it's just concerned about making profit and the prevailing notion coming from the the big green groups coming from the local groups that that I'm aware of that that promote this let's just incentivize the money machine and the money machine will sometimes take care of us if we take care of it yeah, and it's it's similar to the IPCC approach in that it's not asking, can this be sustained? It's just asking, it's kind of making the statement that, well, people will not want to give up energy. People will not want mm-hmm. to give yeah. up comforts. And so we are then obligated mm-hmm. to design something that doesn't give up that, uh, that luxury. And so, but we don't like the CO2. And, and so it never really questions, is that luxury something that we can afford or is it actually something that's killing uh, you know, our own chances at success? Well, let me, let's continue with the irreverence. <laughs> In number five on your list, it says technology and innovation are slowing, not accelerating. And next, number six says technology, renewable energy will not solve our big problems. Yeah, correct. So for the first one, that catches a lot of people off guard because our narrative is that that's who we are. We just progress and things are at a dizzying rate. And the the game I like to play there is taking somebody from the year 1900, plucking them down in 1960, and then taking somebody from 1960 and plopping them into 2020. So each spans a 60-year uh, jump. Which one is more bewildered about the world around them? And a lot of people, having not thought about it, just assume that the 1960 to 2020 will be more bewildered. But no, they recognize cars and airplanes and televisions and and even you know computers and calculators, even though they look different mm-hmm. and they look better. This you know dumb rectangle, they'll recognize you're talking on a phone. And they'll say, oh, there's no wire, but it must be radio. Radio, yeah. But the 1900 to 1960, the whole household looks different. All these, you know, new appliances and cars and and, uh, and TVs and airplanes, helicopters. I mean, unrecognizable, practically. I mean, they'd still recognize a house and doors and windows and wheels. You know, so a a lot of stuff does carry through. But in my lifetime, I was born in 1970, um, you know, there haven't been that many just major life-changing innovations, internet, and a lot of it's been refinement, okay, Mm -hmm. not 
spanking new things. And so the parameter space is limited. You just, you don't have an infinite field to just innovate and invent arbitrarily many things. It's, it's constrained and people don't recognize that. So you say renewable energy will not solve our big problems. What do you mean by that? So similar to what I said about, you know, what happens if we provide everybody on the planet with abundant energy? Do we suddenly shape up and, you know, uh, inexplicably stop exploiting resources for our, you know, short-term gain? Uh, what tells us that we would even think to do that? So, um, you know, it's it's not the form of energy. Climate change is not good. The CO2 is not going to do good things for us or other species. But but I like to think of the climate climate change is like a hangover. It's a, a really nasty symptom that, you know, causes a lot of distress and discomfort. But the real problem is the drinking problem. And so that's our energy habit. That's the real problem. And so we're trying to design a system that lets us keep partying and drinking to excess without this nasty side effect. You, you but, might even say that renewable, so-called renewable energy is like the, the last hurrah of fossil fuels because it's going to use a lot of fossil fuels without, but without producing very much energy in return. And so it's just the opposite of what it's thought to be. Yeah, there, there are two aspects to that. I agree. I mean, we have never built a solar panel or a wind turbine without fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. We haven't built a hydroelectric dam or a nuclear plant. We don't know how to make concrete at scale mm -hmm. on electricity. We mm -hmm. have to burn stuff. And the simple logic there is that in order to manipulate materials that are strong materials, strong materials have high melting points, concrete and steel. In order to manipulate them, we basically have to melt them or, you know, destroy them and rearrange all the parts, which means high temperatures. And it's hard to create high temperatures through electricity because that high temperature will destroy the electrical apparatus itself. You know, a heating coil can only get so hot before it itself melts. And so how are you going to melt other products you know, okay, you can have things at different melting points and tungsten has a higher melting point, whatever. But Solar panels will not make solar panels and wind turbines will not provide the energy to make wind turbines. Yeah, the process heat is hard. That is a bottleneck mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't really appreciate. The other thing to appreciate is that when it comes to materials like copper and aluminum and, and other, you know, mined materials, the renewable technologies require often 10 times more of those than the equivalent energy output from fossil fuels. So we have we have to step up our mining operations way above what we have today to provide an equivalent energy appetite to you know uh, satisfy that energy appetite. And so, you know, I think of I, I, I use squirrels as a stand-in or sometimes as newts as a stand-in for just non-human life. Are they hoping that we succeed at this renewable transition? It's the worst possible thing we could do to them. It takes so much infrastructure for one thing. You know, by the time you make the grid that's required to accommodate solar and wind, that takes a whole lot of energy just from an energy and carbon standpoint. It seems to be a non-starter without even accounting for the biodiversity loss that occurs. 
or the pollution. Right. It, it's a very narrow uh, uh, sort of set of considerations. And again, prioritizing our convenience and comfort above everything else. And Short I term. guess what I'm saying is that Short is term convenience and comfort. Yeah. Yeah. The devastating outlook that will fail. Mm-hmm. It is guaranteed to fail. And so do you want to be on the side of failure and promote all these things? Um, and I'm not saying we should be promoting fossil fuels. I'm saying the entire habit needs to be challenged. The entire way that we live on this planet needs to be challenged. Well, I've said for some time, I just pulled a number out of the air, but we need to reduce our energy usage by 75%, you know, um, because maintaining our current energy usage is not an option. If you look at the consequences of that, increasing our energy usage is not an option. Besides which, there are so many things that we do with that energy. It's like, what do we do with the energy? Do we need to make... Uh, I, I read from the international, from the uh, Energy Information Agency that the United States uses 100, 100 quadrillion BTUs yeah. of energy, approximately. So mm-hmm. is that going to keep going up? What, what are we doing with all this energy that we, that we need to maintain or, and increase that number? Uh, well, the, the answer in some ways is just... Uh there in the statistics, we're eroding our biodiversity. And that's that's what we do with our, our energy surplus. And I'll point out to anybody watching this that you made me turn on my lights. Uh, for, <laughs> right, for exactly. exactly. Normally I I'd be felt guilty about it. I, I really did. Yeah. So and, before, and, the, before we started recording, I asked Tom to turn on his lights because it was a bit dark and... and uh, and, and it has I, I felt up a guilty bit. about it. I know you're trying to do the right thing. And also I have the cat on my yeah, lap. Yeah, the cat. Right. Yeah, so. I made him made the cat jump on or well, the cat got a ride. He, you yeah, carried the cat into the, the lights. Right. But uh, so, this is our 18-year-old uh cat. He's doing doing well. Let's talk about your hockey sticks. You have a so hockey stick curves. This is reminiscent of the limits to Club of Rome limits to growth, which is about fifty year fifty years old now. And it says uh, so. A hockey stick curve is something that is flat for a while and then goes up suddenly, like a hockey stick. So your your the charts that you give include the gross world product, which is similar to GDP except the whole world. GWP GWP per capita is a hop, hockey stick curve. Energy per capita is a hockey, not just energy but energy per capita is a hockey stick curve. Copper production, CO2 pollution, plastic pollution are are all hockey stick curves. In other words, you look at the graph and you see a sudden jump sometime in the 20th century. You're also, and then there are hockey sticks that go down in the wrong direction. The mass of wild mammals on land, the forest cover as a percent of land, and old growth forest cover as a percent of land. And all those things show those things zeroing out in this century. They're diving hard. It's it's a free fall. Yeah, it's it's devastating. And you know, it it really the correlation is not causation, but in this case, I mean we can connect it up. <laughs> Except this um, time it is. Yeah, that that 
all of those things that are going up in our resource use and energy use have direct consequences as we expand and exclude habitat uh, and, and destroy habitat. Uh, and, you know, it's a double whammy for the, the critters because as climate changes, which is a slower process, I mean, still serious, but it's a kind of happening on a different time scale. As, as animals might be, you know, tempted to just sort of migrate, they can't anymore because it's mm -hmm. not a, contig a contiguous sort of forest that lets them just sort of move as they need to. So uh, they're trapped on these little islands and they'll just die. So it's really, um, yeah, all these hockey sticks have created an exhilarating ride for us, but it's terrifying. And this is the way it's supposed to be. This is, we think that this is the only way it's supposed to be. In one of your articles, you talk about a, a group, a cult that within that cult, they, everything that seems normal to them, but anybody outside that cult knows that, wow, a lot of what these people believe is not normal. And anybody looking out, looking, anybody on the outside looking in at our civilization would be able to recognize that, wow, what these people believe believe and how they see the world is not normal. And not only that, but self-destructive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anybody who, and I, I'm not a um, sort of proponent of spacefaring civilizations. I don't think that's a thing. But, you know, uh, in, in a sense, because any mm -hmm. civilization, any, I shouldn't even use that word, but any people, any uh, sort of being that has figured it out for long-term sustainability is not going to be spacefaring. But if such mm -hmm. a, uh, a, um, a culture were to look at ours, they would instantly understand that ours is destined to fail in short order and they would just you know hang their heads in shame that speaking of space travel you write that space colonization is an infantile fantasy that is not part of our future correct this is a reminding our viewers and listeners this is an astrophysicist talking you would think an astrophysicist would be all on board with space travel, but he says space colonization is an infantile fantasy that is not part of our future. Yeah, and maybe just to back up that with a little context, I mean, I grew up very you know, enamored of the space shuttle program, astronomer looking at planets and galaxies and quasars and just, you know, in, embedded into the universe and and reveling in that and using big telescopes and high technology and working with NASA a lot. I got a lot of funding from NASA. I have sat on many NASA panels looking at mission concept studies and proposals to do, you know, Mars landings. I even was the uh, the chief uh, principal investigator of a mission concept study to put a transponder on Phobos, a moon of Mars, and, you know, sat at the Jet Propulsion Lab and they're room where they've got mission control and thermal and optical and navigation and all these different sort of people sort of looking at a design and deciding, you know, if this is all, all systems are checking out, this didn't materialize into hardware. But, you know, I've been in those roles, I've been in, embedded in this sort of space culture and, um, 
but but the on the flip side, I know a little something about the scale and the hardship of space. And it's something that the entertainment industry distorts to the extent that we don't we're not well calibrated. We we have seen it on the screen. And so it feels real, it feels mm-hmm. believable and not really that hard. But you know, just the radiation environment alone is hundreds of times higher than on the surface of the earth. And so your cancer risk just goes through the roof. And ironically, were you to try to live on Mars for the radiation alone, you'd have to live in a cave underground and suddenly reflect on the fact that, wait a minute, I thought I was advancing in technology, but now I'm just a caveman. You know, uh, (laughs) How did that happen to me? This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. So so we're taking all of these resources and we're using them to get to a planet that is not currently habitable. We're going to expend who knows countless trillions in resources to get to a planet to to try to make it habitable instead of taking the one that we have and making it habitable. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of the language there is in a sense, part of the problem, and I'm guilty of it too, which is the idea that humans couldn't make anything habitable or not, that is not Mm -hmm. within our power, Mm -hmm. but it's part of our hubris that we are in control of everything. Mm. And we can make this earth habitable or not. Now we can clearly do things to make it uninhabitable, but we can't design the complex ecosystems that make a true sustainable existence. We just have to be participants, but not masters, not controllers. Okay, since under- you've uh, mentioned hubris, let's talk about the first two items on your list. One is humans are not the reason for all of creation not the end point or goal in this universe. And you say that human life is no more sacred than that of a wolf as just one example. Yeah, and those are hard for a lot of people to swallow because we have definitely been uh, kind of uh, stewing and and, uh, in, in this culture that humans are the best. And this idea of human exceptionalism is in some ways our, our biggest flaw um, that that sort of puts us above other species and we're really just animals. And um, when I say that we're no more valuable than a wolf or any other, I mean, that's just one example. Um, yeah, what good are we actually? Um, you could make the argument that we're sort of the least valuable species on the planet mm-hmm. um, based on how we're handling things. And, um, you know, we give ourselves human rights, but they're always to our advantage. Well, <laughs> most, most of politics, we yeah, hear about problem. human rights from organizations, institutions that have no respect for human rights themselves. Yeah. And, you know, most of most political skirmishes are just battles over these arbitrary rights. You know, do you have a right to carry guns or have an abortion? And it's it's all about rights that we're all just making up. They're all fictions, mm-hmm. they're all fabrications. There's nothing biophysically rooted in any of them. And I think my attitude is more that 
the time-tested approach that works for millennia and millions of years is a biophysical reality that doesn't have this artificial layer of kind of imposed on it that we've we have in our legal systems and our um, political systems and financial systems those are those are all sort of um, artificial designs that we pay more attention to than the underlying reality and that again is just unsustainable and it doesn't work in the long term so the the, the wolf is um you know genetically as complex as we are um and serves a role in an ecosystem that is valuable to the ecosystem and um on the one hand i would say that yeah we we share kind of equal value because neither of us have really that much value in a, mm -hmm. in a way no individual is is really sacred or valuable the wolf isn't and we aren't either we've promoted ourselves into that status but that's that's a cheat mm -hmm. so you wrote a book energy and human ambitions on a finite planet assessing and adapting to planetary limits it's about 450 pages and it's free and online anybody that googles that title can easily find it energy and human ambitions on a finite planet and your abstract says the message throughout is that humanity faces a broad sweep of foundational problems as we inevitably transition away from fossil fuels and confront planetary limits in a host of unprecedented ways. A shift whose scale and probable rapidity offers little historical guidance. Yeah. So this this is a a textbook for non-science majors uh, college level but really any high school student should be able to follow it it's it's uh, meant to be um both readable as a you know an, an enjoyable read if you enjoy this sort of thing um and so I've had friends and and acquaintances who have read it in just a few days it's not maybe a typical textbook in that sense but that's the context. I will say that since I wrote it and it's not that long, um, you know, I, I released it in uh, 2021. Um, is that right? 2020. Gosh, I can't even remember now. <laughs> that's really kind of crazy. But I my thinking has evolved a lot just since then. So that now I I think that, you know, a lot of the textbook, a lot of the chapters are about solar and wind and what the pros and cons are. And none of it is sugarcoating. None of it is saying, isn't this amazing? This is where we're heading. It was, you know, pointing out real practical limitations and difficulties and head scratchers. Um, but, you know, more and more, I'm I'm moving into the phase of wondering, well, wait a minute, what, why are we doing all, all of these things? What is the overall point and is any ambition based on on this flawed approach to living on this planet just destined to fail and so shouldn't we really be digging deeper into the roots of who and what we are and why and and so that's kind of a direction i've moved into 
Let me ask you about this. I've been fascinated since I discovered you and Nate Hagens and Simon Michaud and Daniel Schmachtenberger. Somewhere in there, I got the idea that money correlates to energy and that also money and energy correlate to materials and electrons. So the movement of money, money is a flow, money flows through the economy, energy flows through the economy, materials flow through the economy and electrons also. So it is, it, it, are all, do all four of those things correlate? And even if they don't, I wouldn't want to get bogged down in that part, but it's just fascinating that, you know, it seems to me that one corollary of this is that if you put more money into the economy, like when Congress spends $367 billion on so-called renewable energy, that, that, that necessarily the money triggers energy, energy triggers materials, which means mining, Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That that money is a is a claim on resources, mm-hmm. and debt is a claim on future resources. Mm-hmm. And so we have kind of mortgaged our future, and and sort of uh, put the chips down, saying that we we demand that Earth supply this future resource to make good on our promise. Well, that's not always going to work. Um, it's kind of a, a Ponzi scheme that is destined again to fail because it's not it's not respecting the biophysical limits that you you can't put arbitrary claims on a physical resource it's worked so far because we're still in the kind of uh we haven't hit the ground yet you know so the rock is still going to fly as until it hits the ground and so it, it seems like you can make up rules um that 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 work, but they only work in the short term. But yeah, if we are biophysical um, machines on a biophysical substrate, and those are the inviolate rules that that uh, no amount of, of fancy footwork will will get around because we still everything involves energy and everything involves materials for us to eat and live. So so far what's keeping that ball in the air is like money from banks. So banks that are supported by government at taxpayer expense, but government gives money to banks. Banks put money into the economy. The The 2008 recovery was all about government throwing money at banks and banks doing whatever they wanted to with it. And even though like the, the feasibility of, of getting energy and using it is going to decline over the course of time it's kind of this bubble continues because of banking money am i wrong about that yeah i think i think there's a lot to that and my understanding of it is that you know there's this thing called fractional reserve banking where a bank can loan out more money than it has sitting in its vault and what that does is it puts somebody on the line to pay it back and how they pay it back is by engaging in the world in some way, making a product or offering a service or doing something that requires energy and materials uh, of value to somebody else. And so in in the process of making that loan, the bank has basically said, the earth has got our back. The earth is going to refill the coffers once this person who is now on the hook for paying us back, it, it, it 
incentivizes and in fact uh, mandates them to go out and destroy something in in a generic sense in order to to pay us back and so yeah that that financial system is is set up to exploit and over exploit because it doesn't recognize any biophysical limit and it's just going to keep going until it fails and you can look at any sector of the economy. You can look at transportation. You can look at food and agriculture. You can look at fashion. You can look at communications. Uh, every You can look at defense. Every sector of our economy, anytime anything is manufactured, you're taking materials from the living world or from, the, from mines. You're taking materials and turning it into something. And the, for one thing, there's only so much of that. For another thing, it's it's a polluting process. Agriculture has been kind of rigged and jerry-rigged in a way to make it, um, you know, to 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 accelerate the rate at which we kill things and get a little bit of calories out of it, you know. And I'll point out on that on that uh, notion that our agriculture is so heavily dependent on fossil fuels that we're basically eating some fraction of our fossil fuel energy mm -hmm. and at a 10 to one ratio, it takes 10 kilocalories of fossil fuel energy to produce one kilocalorie of energy. Yeah, and it, it need not be that way, you know, it, we, it, we, it, for, right. for, for generations and, you know, millennia, we ate food that did not require any fossil fuels to make. That's right. And, and we, we would have failed sooner, you know, prior to this inheritance of fossil fuels, um, if we had this overhang of having to spend more energy to put into the food than we got out, because that, that's a losing proposition. Uh, but we've gotten away with it because of the finite resource. And it's because of this finite resource that we have swelled our population to 8 billion people, never would have happened without fossil fuels. And now we are way above what we could sustain without such an input. And that leaves us in an incredibly vulnerable position. And it's almost certain that, uh, that the waning of fossil fuels, which itself is a certainty because it's a finite resource, will be accompanied by a dramatic uh, sort of reduction of human population, which is not likely to be a fun time because that involves starvation and, uh, you know, famine and, you know, mass, uh, a mass drawdown of our population. Nobody wants to see that, but we should have thought of that sooner uh, in a way. There's a little bit of a, a, of an idealist in me that says, maybe we can identify the, like if, like, let's say we did triage and we identified high priority activities, medium and low, and the high priority activities are, are well, they're the ones, things that we need for food, water, health. The low priority activities are the ones that are actually destructive. And then the, there's everything in the middle. We could, in my view, scale down all the destructive activities and still support this population. But there, you know, if we did that, that would be historically unprecedented for us to actually organize our affairs on a large scale in a way that actually benefits people. You know. 
Yeah, and it would require first a kind of um, widespread understanding that we have to jump off this train. That it's it's you know the the tracks haven't been laid ahead, and there's a big chasm, and the train's going to go over, and so we have to jump off and risk some hurt and hardship in doing so. But it's our only choice. But you know, meanwhile, the train is very comfortable, and people don't really you can't in a train you can't even see ahead uh, if you're a passenger, and so um, it's hard to make the argument that we need to do something so radical. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're basically uh, going to cling to this system uh, well beyond its its uh, usefulness, and we're just going to be dragged down by our own design. I heard this recently. I don't remember who said it or whether it's true, but it's rang true at the time. And that is, somebody said that most of the people in India would be better off immediately if civilization collapsed because they would be free to do what they have been doing uh, that kind of thing are there are people in the world who would immediately be better off if yes, civilization sir. collapsed and those would tend to be people that are have an indigenous lifestyle and or rural organic agriculture the people that would suffer most are those who are in the cities they depend on cities and they can't quickly change that yeah, I agree with that. Uh, the, the the sort of the bigger they are, the harder they fall sentiment that if you're if you never really adopted much of our the trappings of our civilization, uh, the better equipped you are when those things crumble. Um, and, you know, I, I am a product of the civilization. I'm not going to be one of those who uh, does well in this uh, evolution um and it's very sad to me i mean it's it it causes me a lot of emotional distress and in fact makes it hard sometimes for me to interact with other people because i i can see ahead or at least i mean i could be wrong about all this i have to admit but but in my mind i can see ahead to the enormous suffering that is likely to happen and doesn't have to you know we could make some big changes hmm. in our attitudes and our expectations and avoid the worst. Right. So Dr. Thomas Murphy has been my guest, astrophysicist at University of California, San Diego. I want to give a few search terms that people can search. Do the math is your blog. So uh, Thomas Murphy University of California, San Diego, do the math as the blog. The book is Energy and Human Ambitions on a Finite Planet. And there's a one of your blog posts that we didn't get to very much. It's called Climate, a Love Story. And I want people to look up that one as well. Yeah, that's basically the, the dream of renewable energy and why it might actually be a nightmare if carried out. Fantastic. Thank you, Tom, for joining me. Sure.